The following podcast is for healthcare professionals only. All views expressed belong to our speakers and don't necessarily reflect those of Nestle Health Science. Hello and welcome to Inside Medical Nutrition Podcast, a podcast powered by Nestle Health Science and hosted by me, Dr. Ninia Patel. We're doing a career support series, and in today's episode, I'm delighted to be speaking to Dr. Graham O'Connor, who works as a clinical academic at the Great Ormond Street Hospital. Well, hello, Graham. Welcome back to the podcast. And so we've had a conversation before on our last uh, series, and I'm really excited about today's conversation because um, we're doing a new series, which is looking at career support, and you're novel because you are a research dietitian, right? So we're going to be talking all about you, your, what you're doing and how you got there and giving some top tips to our listeners who might be student dietitians or other dietitians just really wanting to get into research. So let's dive straight in. Um, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? I know a little bit about you, but for new listeners, um, just talk us through a little bit about yourself. Yes. I mean, I qualified 20 years ago now, which is just crazy. It just does feel like yesterday. It makes me feel incredibly old. Um, 14 of those years have been at Great Ormond Street. And I've been very lucky to have a varied career in one yeah. hospital. So working in eating disorders, then in intensive care, then doing my PhD and then going on to my research role, which, which is great. I, I got into the research side of this because I was working on a psychiatric ward at the time with eating disorders. Okay. And we, so you did a mark Masters in eating disorders, is that right? Or did, is that how you got that interest? No, do you know what? I know I did, there was a maternity leave and I didn't want to cover it. And there was, <laughs> there was short and I had no interest in it at all. And it's so funny how these end up being, that's my, my whole career end up being working in wow. eating disorders. So it was total accident. Um, okay. And I was very reluctant to work in it. But we were, we were following the NICE um, refeeding guidelines um, for children and they just weren't working. So I published a case report for a child who was following refeeding guidelines who went into refeeding syndrome mm -hmm. and then published that and then from that developed um, then did a, a systematic review looking at what the evidence was and there really wasn't any evidence so identified a gap in practice I, there, there and then just went on to do um, a PhD. Luckily, well, just this so you've always had a keen interest then in research because you know out of your work you're already asking the questions that you kind of need to ask to then go do a PhD. And again, it's just having the support around me. So I'm very lucky to be in a big research hospital where okay. you have a research question. I had no I had no intention of doing a PhD, but it just built that way that the support that was around me. So I was incredibly lucky to just move forward and get that the supervisors around me. Um, and that started in 2010. Um, and that was looking at different feeding rates into severely malnourished children who were hospitalized with anorexia nervosa. And I was very lucky that the results of that changed and European refeeding guidelines. Wow. And it also didn't gave me the platform to have the networking. And I was able then to write the um the guidelines for dietitians working in eating disorders. Um, and that was working with NHS England. And then the guidelines were then endorsed by the British Dietetic Association. Fantastic. So that was a fun, that's like the, the background of how I got into research. And then mm. for the last three years, I've been working as the research lead for dietetics at Great Ormond Street. Okay, so um, what does that entail? So the, the, I'm very fortunate I get to work across all the teams. So I, again, it just makes me, I mean, I'm working in metabolics, gastroenterology, which areas I haven't wow. always worked in, but you get to work with these fantastic projects, which then increase my, increases my clinical knowledge and also helps me within my, my research field. Of course. Um, the, the, the key elements of my current post 
is to, is to build research capacity and engagement. And that basically means that we're establishing and incorporating research into every aspect of clinical work and life and building culture within that research within the department and the trust. But we always have to build that capacity because dietitians are at the front line. So mm. they need to have those skills to be able to do the research, identify those gaps in practice and just do that data collection. So that's like a really fun part of my, my job at the moment, just building capacity and capabilities within the department. Mm, mm, love it because you know i think the the beauty of what you do you're on the ground essentially so you're doing research that is um super applicable to what uh patients are actually needing it's not very kind of abstract because it's removed um in a completely academic sense it's a really good point because when you're a clinical academic you still need to have a very small amount of clinical work because you want to you still be an expert in that area and you still want to identify those gaps in care. And I think the higher that you get, you tend to move away from that you, clinical yeah. training. But I mean, at the moment, I'm lucky that I've got a, a bit of both. It's 0.2 clinical, so then, then, then 0.8 is, is research focused. Okay, okay. Um, so are you working on any, I mean, obviously, within your role, being involved in research, I'm sure you're working on a number of different research projects, but what is your real passion project at the moment? Oh, the area that I'm probably working in at the moment, and that's, that's really changed, is, is microbiomes, which I'll come on to actually yeah. later on, because this is, again, something that happened um, working with another project, um, which I'm going to mention later on. But that's probably microbiomes. I also work in spinal muscular atrophy, looking at amino acids and how that controls symptoms in terms of oral secretions and constipation. Um, and we also say that again. Uh, it sounds ex- extremely intelligent. I need to just digest it again. What is it? Just what? Do, what is the second project you're working on? So there's the disorder called spinal muscular atrophy type one, and it's a horrendous disease in where okay. the most children would die before the age of eight. Wow. Um, they, there's a new drug that's come out that was um, funded by the NHS. It's the most ex- expensive drug to, that the NHS has endorsed. Wow. It's about a million pound, um, and it just increased the longevity of these children. But what? Because they are living long now we've identified they've got more issues which often is the case so mm-hmm. gastrointestinal issues secretion issues and families for years have been using their own amino acid diets just just to improve these symptoms but there was no research to support it so we did the pilot study to see if we can see any benefit and the results have been really exciting that we have seen a change in their all secretions come off medication for constipation um so it's been a, yeah, a very rewarding job. Um, so that's probably the, the areas that I'm working in at the moment. Okay. Um, and I know because in Dietetics Today, I read one of your articles um, about a um, retrospective trial that you've been involved in. Um, tell me more about that. Yeah, I, it's, that's absolutely right. So and this was what was important about this trial was how I collaborated with industry. Mm. Um, and I think it's important for dietitians to understand what, what is the position statements for us working in industry? Because... You know, you know, 10 years ago, or even five years ago, there was industry used to be a dirty word for dietitians, even um, in any clinicians. I mean, we were, there was a bit of reluctance to, to, to work with them. But the NHS is really clear now that clinical trials supported by industry plays an important part in keeping the NHS at the Absolutely. forefront of modern treatments and yeah. research. Um, the NHS supports the conduct of high quality commercially funded research carried out to recognised international standards by NHS staff on NHS premises. And the key point here is that long as there's no cost um, by the NHS and it is all covered by industry, that's their main concern. Mm. The British Dietetic Association also states that 
As regulated nutrition experts, dietitians can protect and improve public health by working with commercial companies, ensuring the highest quality clinician-led research. Um, it's just important that dietitians declare any issues or beliefs or contracts that they may have um, with that company. Um, and the BJ also talks about product endorsement, that if it's one product and it's you know, no other product that, that's similar, then it's okay to, to discuss that, that one product. But if there are more than one product, then it's important to name all of those products. So it's just a few boundaries that we have to adhere to. But then going on to the actual project, the real world evidence project that we were working on really stemmed from the, the massive increase in blended diets. And this has was driven by the by America, where a lot of the insurance companies don't cover for enteral formulas to be used in children with chronic illnesses. Wow. So parents, of course, found a solution to this and started to use blended diets. But what was an interesting side effect from this was that parents noted that children were tolerating these blended diets better than the enteral formulas. Mm -hmm. And the dietitian's general role with these blended diets is to ensure that, just looking out, keeping an eye out for risk assessments, because um, often we're diluting that feed, so we want to make sure the micronutrients are there. What was fantastic though, industry responded to this cultural shift and they developed these enteral formulas with food-derived ingredients. Okay. Now, the actual project that we looked at so when I was approached by um, this company, I was initially reluctant, very reluctant to, um, to do it because we really weren't using blended diets and we had no interest in endorsing blended diets. This is about two years ago. Mm. Um, but thankfully, I did sign up to the project. We actually had four centres that were involved, um, three large um, tertiary centres. And we managed to recruit about 40 children. And oh. we looked, it was a retrospective chart review. And we just monitored looking at children that had changed from their standard formula onto a, a food-derived ingredient um, formula. And we were just looking at those children that had they had gastro symptoms before they changed. That's why they were changed onto this formula. And we were just monitoring gastrointestinal symptoms such as reflux, vomiting, constipation, diarrhea. And we just simply assessed, did they, were they the symptoms improved? Were they worse or was there yeah. no change at all? Um, and the results were, I mean, I was really surprised by how great the results were. Um, and what validates this this um, retrospective chart review was that it's, mu it's multi-centered design yeah. as well. And all of us were just saying the same thing that we just noted this huge improvement in tolerance. The, the biggest change that I noticed was with constipation. So out of um, the, we had 11 children that had severe constipation and 90% reported improvement. And of those six of them actually wow. stopped having medication for their constipation, which is fantastic. Um, and again, for retching, vomiting, that, that we noticed 80 to 95% improvement with, with, this, with this formula. Um, so that, that was an exciting project to be Super working Super exciting. And I guess that's where the direction of nutrition is moving, right, in terms of the microbiome. So you're expecting to do more research in that kind of field? Exactly. And this is a great outcome from this study. We're like, yeah. well, what is actually working? I mean, it makes sense that you've got food, real food in the gut. Of course, your gut's going to be more happy. Um, but we are, again, looking, working at Great Ormond Street and being affiliated with the Institute of Child Health. We had the opportunity to look at the gut microbiome to see what is happening at that, that um, molecular level. Yeah. Um, and we're now looking at, we're doing, we've got a, a, a prospective observational study monitoring these um, food, derived, food, derived, food derived ingredient products to mm -hmm. see are we getting increased in these short chain fatty acids that, that the microbiomes are producing the metabolomics. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's been a great collaboration with the institution as well from yeah. this project. 
Fantastic. You know, Graham, um, as you're speaking, I'm just like, oh my goodness, you, you, you don't, you're involved in such interesting work, but I'm guessing your role is very unique in the dietetic world. Is it? Or are there other people with your type of position? I've been incredibly lucky, actually, how I, how I got into this research role. And as far as I was aware, I'm pretty, I mean, this is, I mean, it's difficult to know, but I think I was one of the first, if not the only pediatric permanent clinical academic that that's posted, um, you know, it's funding now. Um, and I was, it, I was pretty much just, I was in the right place at the right time. Um, so I'd finished my PhD. I was doing, continuing with doing my research as much as I could by, by still being fully fully clinical and I was trying to help colleagues out to get into research the gosh great Ormond street research strategy had been released by this time and they were looking to they were trying to emphasize the importance of clinical academics the council dean had also released their target of one percent of all hps would be in a clinical academic role by 2030 wow but this prompted the great Ormond street research charity bursary um, and this was an incentive launch to to meet these local national targets um, and this research capacity build initiative was specifically designed as a pump prime initiative okay. so those of us that were going to apply for this grant we had to prove that we could get funding in the future in the pipeline i managed to secure funds initially for one year as an 8a dietetic research facilitator like for 0.6 weightings so of three days a week but the expectation really was to build research culture demonstrating a source of income um, and revenue for the trust and unfortunately one of the in big metrics for this bursary was money and how much money yeah. you could bring in it wasn't necessarily they're interested in how many projects you're running how many patients you recruited or how you changed their lives unfortunately as in Often the cases with the NHS, you have to be cost neutral. Of course. Otherwise, they're not interested. Um, so I managed to develop a research strategy for the next five years to show how we could potentially build an income. Okay. But the overarching goal was to improve patient outcome as much as we, we could. And we just hypothesized that by investing and funding it in a dietetic research role within dietetics, this would generate an income for the department. And I was fortunate to have secured funding and we brought some really great um, dietetic-led projects through the department. So I got another year of funding, which was 0.6 at the band 8A. And then again, I was very fortunate to bring more funding through and they just they, I was able to get this full-time permanent position. But it, it really did take two years for me to establish this, this role. So I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, if you're going to go into research, you need that initial support behind you because it's not going to happen overnight. It does take to, to write a proposal to get the funding in. It does take a lot of work. Um, yeah, you've raised two questions in my mind. Um, the first one is obviously, should all dietitians be incorporating a research aspect into their role, do you think? Um, well, I, I would definitely say yes. Um, I think research is for everybody. So, But to what extent they... Yeah incorporate research into their job will vary. Now, as a minimum, all allied health professions should be questioning their practice. They should be having a regular journal club where they Brilliant. are properly critiquing papers. I don't think people always know how to critique appropriately, but that should be the minimum. And that is research. And people don't realise, you know, by critiquing your practice, doing a systematic review, that, that is the minimum that, that we should be doing. But those of us that are interested in research, they want to go on to do data collection or even go on to devising protocols and that that option is there available um, for dietitians to do. But what, what 
question I think this also raises is, well, what's the difference between me as a clinical academic and then a dietitian who should be doing some sort of research? Mm. And I think the main difference for, for my role is that I'm on a defined career pathway that supports research development. Okay. I'm building research capacity within the department. I have a mentoring program. There's a succession planning as well, because I want to make sure there's dietitians coming up behind Brilliant. me that can carry on doing the work that I'm doing. And you have this then affiliation or honorary contract with a partner university and you're developing or adhering a research strategy. So it's just, even though everyone should be doing research, the difference between a clinical academic and somebody else who's a clinician involved in research is probably those those changes. And you know, dietitians who are involved in research, that includes your audits, your service evaluation, yeah. your quality, quality improvement, because all of this eventually leads to research yeah. if that's the wish of the, the person. Yeah. No, what's interesting is you mentioned earlier on the importance of how you got to your the point you are in your career because you had a very supportive environment around you, um, which helped. And what you're doing, which I love, is also mm-hmm. developing that for other dietitians underneath you. But perhaps in other hospitals and other settings, that structure and that support is not necessarily there. So would you have any advice or tips for someone who perhaps is wanting to get more involved in research, what they could do or how they could start off? Yeah, it's a really good point because often, you know, if you're in a district general hospital, you're going to be working flat out clinically and you're going mm. to be you know, often working alone. So it's very difficult to get the time to do the research. The, your, the main um, attribute you're going to need is to have a thick skin because you're going to get a lot of rejections. And that's yeah. absolutely normal for anybody who's in research. Um, but the British Dietetic Association have a research webpage which has a lot of information on there about how to start off with these grassroots research. Um, and they've also got the British Dietetic Association Get Grants, which is very accessible for dietitians. Mm. And they're very keen to get those new to research to, to get the grant, uh, get a small grant to get started. So you can cover your salary yeah. um, for a period of time to get into that um, area of research. The BDA also has the research symposium every year, which is December. If you can get along to that, it's incredibly inspirational. You see dietitians working in paediatrics to adults and the the amount of clinical work that's going on, clinical research, it's it's really inspirational. Mm -hmm. So they can get along to that. Another resource is CHAPRA, which is the Council for Allied Health Professionals in Research Brilliant resources there again, how to write abstracts, how to identify gaps in practice. And similarly, the National Institute of Health Research has a very good um, resource base of based like if you want to do to write a paper or a systematic review. Mm. If you don't have any support around you, you should you have your every hospital will be linked to a local clinical research network. Yeah. And within that, there's the research development service. So if you're a lone dietitian and there's no one in your hospital doing research, you can get assigned a professor from a who's working on a mentoring program and you can pitch your research idea and they will build the research around that research idea. And they will let you know how you want to build up your your research output. So then you can apply for the big grants, which is the, the National Institute of Health Research. So this is really it's really good for um, everyone to be aware of that you, there is the clinical academic career pathway that is run by Health Education England. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's at every point of your clinical career, there's the opportunity to carry out research and they, they, they signpost you where your funding would be. If it's just a beginning internship 
of your building right through up to your professorship. So for me, and of anybody who wants to be on this pathway, every step of the way, you can get funded to, to become a professor. Um, and that's the, so that's called the, the NIHR, Clinical Academic Career Pathway. And so just to be mindful of that. So there's lots of support if you are a, is working in a silo. Um, Fantastic if, tips. If you no, can get absolutely. that network around you, it's, it's, it's great. Really. And then the other question I had is you, you seem to be really good at applying for grants and being successful in getting the grants. Um, and I know we mentioned earlier about the cl- collaboration with industry and the importance of that um, within clinical practice as well. Do you have any tips in terms of finding that finding those collaborations or perhaps even those grants um, with perhaps industry or the private sector as well? Yeah, and, and I'm, again, I'm very lucky that I work at Great Warming Street. So I'm under no illusions that I'm working with these fantastic companies, but it's because I have this brilliant okay. cohort around me. Yeah. And then we also have brilliant projects. So I have a fantastic proactive team around me where they, I do not have to go looking for work. They all come okay. to me with these great projects. Great ideas. <laughs> yeah. And, but the, the, I mean, the last three years working and collaborating with industry has been a big part of my role because often if you've got a charity funded research project or an NIHR funded mm. project, there isn't much um, funding that's left over from that. Whereas you work with industry, the expectation is there's the overheads that they have to pay. But this is where that support for my role comes in with this. Um, so that's been really important but then other um other ways that i've managed to, to to sort of build on this role is that having my own mentors and supervisors um so gary frost has been uh, he's a professor of dietetics at imperial who's been working with me and then also where well, i did my phd in the nutrition um, nutrition unit at ic institute of child health I'm still working with my collaborators there. And just remember the British Dietetic Association, they do have these grants available for the, for the um, for when, you're, when you're starting out. But I would recommend if you can collaborate with industry, it's a great way to get started out. And often it would be multi-centered. So there might be myself who would be the principal investigator and I'll be working with the um, um, dietitians who are interested in research. So definitely keep an eye out for industry because they do... They put the fillers out. They've got new products that we want to try. Try and often they might even be coming to you to say, "What do you? What product would be really good for the for your cohort of patients?" Mm-hmm. Now, so yeah, I would definitely encourage um, dietitians to to collaborate. No, fantastic. Um, well, Graham, as always, I've loved having a conversation with you and um, we must wrap up. Um, but before we wrap up, I just want to say you're fabulous and you're doing incredible stuff. And Thank I know you you're so going to much, be yeah. a real inspiration <laughs> to a lot of dietitians out there from two points of view. The first is I'm all about getting more diversity within our profession. And you're one of the few males within a very female dominated um, uh, uh, career so how can we get more males um in dietetics and what advice would you perhaps have for the male dietitians out there and just any top tips in general about people who are wanting to get more involved in research just to end off the podcast it's, it's, it's interesting because where i was at a meeting um, at the institute of childhood health last weekend there was five dietitians and three of us were males in research it's, so, <laughs> it's incredible yet yeah, so unusual but but I, I mean, it's interesting. Last ten years, the the, the number of males going into uh, into dietetics it's still relatively low, mm. um, and, and I don't know how we change. I suppose well, we can get out there and advertise that you know men are in this profession, um, but it, it's difficult. It's, I suppose it's nutrition and food. It's just that um, a traditional thinking that it's that, that it's a female. Um, 
post really oh yeah job but I don't know how we'd go about getting extra but also I think it's like you know the exposure to to conversations like this exploring the fact that you're doing something so different that's not necessarily the conventional dietetic route as well I think perhaps would then make um, different people also interested in dietetics because they can follow different paths yeah absolutely and I think that's you're right and we we have an open day um, um, at the the university where people with A-levels would come in to see all the different professions within medicine. And we present there. And I try to go along to show that, you know, this male is working in this area. No, fantastic. And so we're chatting again, and I wanted to wrap up. Um, so what are your top tips in terms of uh, people wanting to get more involved in research that you want to list, uh, leave our listeners with, Graham? Yeah, if, if you can collaborate and network and with and linking with your local university to find nutrition units there, because there will be some dietitians potentially working in that area. Um, and then industry is a great way to start. And then go to the British Dietetic Association research webpage. Um, and then if you're really stuck or you, you really are silo working, use your research development service, your local clinical research network, because um, they will be there to support you. And, I, and, you know, I'm available if you wanted to contact me for any advice. Great tips, Graham. Thank you so much. As always, a real pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, so thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lena. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Medical Nutrition. If you enjoyed the podcast and found the content useful, please share it with your colleagues and consider subscribing so you never miss an episode. For more information on this topic or to share your feedback, please visit the Nestle Health Science N Plus Hub or click on the link in the show notes.